History happened everywhere. A terrifyingly random place. A horrifyingly random time. And a topic pulled from the coffin. The challenge, find the fearful. Uncover the undead. And share the shocks. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello, my name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHU studios with the brains to my lunchbox. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. (laughs) Brains to your lunchbox. Yeah, I figured if I'm a working zombie, I'd have to bring in a packed lunch and I'd probably bring brains. Well, yeah, that's a very sensible suggestion. I'm a very sensible zombie. (laughs) Now, last week, the Dursleter gave us the living dead in Paris during 1800 to 1900. So, Ryan, in your research, what has arisen? What have you managed to disinter? What have you brought to fatten up our juicy brains? Well, Pete, in this week's spooky episode of HHE, we're taking a Gaulish trip to the grand city of gastronomy and guillotines. We'll meet the rotting corpse who went to visit a doctor, we'll take a peek underground to witness the terrifying horror of the ancient catacombs, and we'll pull back the curtain of a legendary theatre, one that thrilled spectators with gruesome and graphic grisliness. So bolt your doors, sink your teeth into some candy, and get ready for a lurching, lumbering monster of an episode. Welcome to the City of Lights and Love, Bienvenue à Paris. Well, before we begin, Ryan, I'd just like to check. Did you just pun ghoul with gaul? Yeah, gaul, as in the old French. I, I admired that. I saw it, I admired it. It was worth pointing out in case anyone missed it. It was rather sweet, I think. <laughs> it's very rare that you point out a pun of mine, so I, I'll take it. I enjoyed it thoroughly, I must say. Very nice. But let's move on, Ryan. Where are we today? Well, Pete, we are nestled in the heart of the country that gave the world baguettes and berets. Paris is located in the north-central region of France. You're going to find it straddling the River Seine, arranged into 20 districts called arrondissements, which uh, spiral out clockwise from the centre and are home to over 14 million people. It's a good number of people. But Paris is not just the capital and the most popular city in France, Pete. It is also the cultural epicentre. It's one of the most visited cities on Earth. And it's a relatively small city. It spans just 105 square kilometres, or 41 square miles. And the, the inevitable but slightly ironic recursive question here. Yeah. How many Frances is that? (laughs) (laughs) It's about 6,000 Parises to a France. Oh, right. Well, they've made a good start with one, but there's many more to go. (laughs) Many more to go, yeah. (laughs) Uh, It is known, of course, for its iconic landmarks, things like the Eiffel Tower, Notre Dame Cathedral, and the Louvre Museum. It has two international airports, six major train stations, and a metro system that boasts 308 stations along 140 miles of track, which means, Pete, that no matter where you are in Paris, there is a metro station within just 500 metres of you. Wow. Oh, that's excellent. French is the language, Christianity is the religion, and the flag is divided equally with two vertical stripes of blue and red, in the middle of which is the city's coat of arms. It's a silver ship floating on the waves of the sea. A ship? It's not a coastal city, though, is it? That's surprising to me. It is not. Paris doesn't have its own official anthem, Pete, but if it were to have one, you could probably do no better than La Vie en Rose, which echoes the city's spirit of love, and it sounds a little something like this. This is a song that was written and sung by Parisian-born Edith Piaf in 1945 became a huge hit, Pete. One of the best-selling singles of all time. Wow. This is a classic, isn't it? La Vie en Rose translates as Life is Pink, and it's about the joy of living and the beauty of love. I can see myself smoking a Galois cigarette and glass of red wine in hand, sitting outside at a cafe, watching the world go by. Berry on your head? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's said that Piaf was inspired to write it after the sudden death of her partner, Marcel Sedan. He was a French boxer who was killed in a plane crash. Oh, 
She was still celebrating life. Yeah. She, apparently she just recorded it in one sitting. Efficient, one take Edith, they called her. There you go, Pete. Nice. I enjoyed that thoroughly. That was an excellent choice, Ryan. Halloween in Paris facts! Go, lay them on me, Rye. Okay, Pete, did you know there is no trick-or-treat in Paris? I did not know that. Well, Paris, like much of France, is a bit snooty about Halloween. It's generally seen as a sort of an overly commercial American event. Instead, they like to celebrate Le Toussaint, or All Saints Day, a day later on November 1st. But that doesn't mean that Halloween is non-existent, and a few costume kids are going to be knocking on doors in Paris, but they won't be saying trick or treat. Instead, they'll be saying des bonbons ou un sort, which means candies or a spell. Oh, a spell? Yeah, they just give you a spell, yeah. Which actually is apt because the most popular Halloween costume is the witch costume, followed by Spider-Man, rabbit ears, and sexy cheerleader. (laughs) But there are some costumes, Pete, that you ought to keep an eye out for. For example, in Paris, on Halloween, in 2012, a man dressed as a vampire approached a couple of tourists and stabbed them before running off. (laughs) Oh my lord. Which was followed in 2017 by a man wearing a clown costume who also attacked several local people with a knife. Were these people who refused to give him bonbons or he's just a deranged clown such as one might see in the movies? Followed by, in 2019, (laughs) a man dressed as a pirate left several people injured when he hit them with a sword. Oh no, what is going on over there? But you'll be pleased to know, Pete, that both the vampire and the pirate were caught and prosecuted. But you should still keep an eye out for clowns because the uh, clown was never caught and is still considered to be at large. So keep your eyes peeled in Paris. Yeah, keep away from clowns is sound advice for anyone anywhere, I would have said. Now, Pete, spooky celebrations in Paris. Uh, (laughs) You could do no better than going to Disneyland Paris or Park Asterix, which is the theme park based on the world of the comic book Gauls, Asterix and Oblix. But if you do want to do something a little bit different, then you might want to head to Père Lachaise Cemetery, uh, which is one of the most beautiful cemeteries in Paris, according to a lot of tourist sites. Uh, it is <laughs> Cemetery cer- watchers. <laughs> <laughs> it is certainly the most visited cemetery in the world. In fact, over 3.5 million visitors go there every year. That's half the amount that visit the Eiffel Tower in the same amount of time. It's amazing. <laughs> I went to a cemetery when I was in Paris and there was a big sign up saying, Jim Morrison is not buried here. I guess it must have been one that people got mixed up with. <laughs> they got mixed up with Perlachaise Cemetery because, yes, uh, amongst the winding cobblestone lanes and beautiful memorials, people go on pilgrimage to go and see celebrities. People like Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors, Oscar Wilde, the Irish poet, playwright, and of course, Alan Rickman, the English actor. How oh, is he there now? Most commonly known as Severus Snape in the Harry Potter movies. Well, maybe to you, but I believe he will always be the bad guy in Die Hard. Oh, that's interesting because I was thinking Galaxy Quest. Oh, well, also good by Krepthar's Hammer. (laughs) Now, alternatively, Pete, if cemeteries are not your thing, you could make a visit to La Musée des Vampires, a self-proclaimed cabinet of curiosities dedicated to all things vampires. A cabinet of vampires. Do you (laughs) have to ask permission to enter? (laughs) (laughs) But more relevant to this episode, Pete, if you head down to Le Défense district, you can take part in an outdoor zombie-themed game called Zombie. In the dark, where uh, teams of survivors try to avoid a team of zombies who lurk in the shadows and try and frighten the survivors for points. That sounds brilliant. That does sound fun, doesn't it? <laughs> Next year, Ryan, we'll go there. Just watch out for clowns. <laughs> hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. How do I look? Pretty normal. Why? Why do you ask? Well, I died and I'm a zombie now, and I wanted to make sure I still look okay. Wait, what? Yeah, I'm just worried I look a bit pale. No, no, the first bit. Well, I died and became a zombie. Yeah, that bit. What happened? Well, I woke up this morning and I was feeling tired and lethargic. And right. I just sort of noticed I was shuffling around and okay. kind of moaning like... Oh. Interesting. Yeah, and, and look, look at these dark rings under my eyes. Classic zombie. I can barely think at all. Ryan. Yes, Pete. Have you had your coffee this morning? No, no, not yet. Why'd you ask? Here, here, have this. Oh, oh, wow. Pete, that was amazing. I feel great now. I, I guess I'm not a zombie at all. Thanks, Pete. No problem, Ryan. 
Oh, Pete. Yes, Ryan. I need brains. I know, Ryan. I know. Okay, Ryan, I know where I am. I'm in the City of Lights. I've got my galois, I've got my string of onions. But I want to know more about this place. How did I come to be here? Tell me the history. Alrighty. So, after the last Ice Age, sometime around 10,000 years ago, there is a bunch of hunter-gatherers who arrive in the region that is today Paris. They do their thing, and not much happens for pretty much thousands of years, until the Iron Age rolls around, and a Celtic tribe known as the Parisi, they move into the area around 250 BCE. Now, they settle on the banks of the river, they build themselves a little fishing village, and they call it Lutetia. A couple hundred years later, in 52 BCE, the Romans appear, Pete. Ah, these Romans are crazy. (laughs) I understood that reference. (laughs) And that does not go well for the Parisi, as you can perhaps imagine. They are quickly conquered, Pete, and the area falls under the control of one Julius Caesar. He was big in the area. He really was, yeah. Now, under Roman rule, the town is renamed Lutetia Parisiorum, and it becomes an important centre of trade for the Roman Empire. But eventually that Roman Empire fades, and in the 6th century, Frankish king Clovis I, he takes over the area and makes it his capital city, officially naming it Paris. I've always been a fan of Clovis, because he's got a name that makes me me in mind of a well-loved cow. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking like a nice, tendered meadow. (laughs) Uh, Well, look, this marks the beginning of the Merovingian dynasty of Frankish kings, and they base themselves in Paris and rule over much of modern-day France and parts of Germany. 300 years later, though, in the 9th century, Vikings arrive, and they basically continuously attack Paris until eventually they succeed in establishing some settlements there. In the 10th century, a guy called Hugh Capet, he's crowned the first king of France, and this starts the Capetian dynasty, which goes on to rule France for the next 800 years. Oh, that's solid control. I can admire that. That's a good go, isn't it? Now, during that period, Paris undergoes a significant facelift. We see buildings like Notre Dame Cathedral being built, for instance. Then the Renaissance arrives in the 15th and 16th centuries. Paris grows into a centre of art and learning. And over the next couple of centuries, Paris is transformed yet again. Most notably, when King Louis XIV moves the royal court out of the city to a new home in Versailles. Now, By this time, though, Pete, everybody has sort of grown tired of the disparity in wealth between the rich and the poor, and mob violence turns into organised warfare, culminating in the successful storming of La Bastille, a fortress in Paris, on the 14th of July, 1789. Storming the Bastille, yes, it's one of those iconic historic events that is probably globally famous, isn't it? It is celebrated on the 14th of July every year, even to this day, and uh, this officially kickstarts a wider French Revolution, which ends with the removal of the monarchy and a new direction for France as a semi-presidential republic. Now, the 19th century, which is our time period for this episode, it sees Paris undergo further changes. Uh, Napoleon III, he sets his mind on reshaping the city, quite literally, with grand monuments like the Arc de Triomphe and uh, broad sweeping avenues like the Champs-Élysées. But it's not just city planning that changes, because during the 1800s, Paris evolves into a centre for modern arts, with the development of avant-garde movements like symbolism, impressionism and Art Nouveau changing the artistic landscape. But unfortunately, Pete, Paris suffers a lot of damage during the First World War, and uh, it revives itself just in time for the Nazis to occupy it during the Second World War. They tidied the place up for the Germans, that's kind of them. (laughs) Yeah. Now, post-war, Paris finds its feet again again, and it embraces its culture, promotes itself on the international stage as the capital city of romance, and tourists flock in from all around the world, looking to chain love locks to the railings of bridges, propose to loved ones, and take sunset boat cruises along the river. And I guess that brings us to today, where we find Paris as a thriving city with a diverse and multicultural population, and it's one of the world's most beloved and iconic metropolises, considered the global centre for art, culture, fashion and cuisine. And Pete, in 2024, all eyes are going to be on Paris when they play home to the Olympic Games, which is said to bring over 15 million spectators to the city and an estimated 3.5 billion people watching on television. Wow. Now, I've been to Paris several times, Pete. I know you have too. And personally, I couldn't recommend it enough. And if you haven't been, do go. Agreed. Love Paris. I'm two thumbs up. 
spooky, scary Corinthians Parisi everywhere Until the Romans soon arrived To drive them out of there And then the Vikings came to town In boats so big and long Then ranks and ranks of raging Franks Said here's where we belong Sorry, nice Parisians, your city paid the price. But nowadays our guidebook says the place is really nice. Then kings called Louis came and built a palace at Versailles. The next solution, revolution, heads began to fly. We're sorry, nice Parisians, your kings were far too mean. But they weren't nearly as severe as Madame Guillotine. In World War II, the Nazi crew rolled past the Eiffel Tower. But not for long, they soon were gone, and France was back in power. Now spooky, scary Parisians have nothing left to fear Except for being spotted sporting fashions from last year Okay, so Ryan, I now know how I got to be in my cafe with my lovely cup of coffee. Um, but I hear the sound of moans and groans. I think it's coming around the corner, a shambling that's, mess. Of- it's just me. Sorry, mate. It's my back. <laughs> I am oh. a shambling mess, though. Well, I did think for a moment it was the living dead, Ryan, which is what we're here to talk about. But what is the living dead? Tell me what that means. What are we talking about here? Okay, well, I think pretty much most people have a good impression of what the living dead is. Uh, you know, it's kind of a phrase that's come to mean zombies, right? I think that's what yeah. most people interpret that as. Those reanimated corpses that burst out of graves, shuffle around a bit, mindlessly driven by an insatiable hunger for the living. It just feels like me on my commute, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, that's the general understanding, I think. And broadly speaking, that's true. But also, taken more literally, the living dead actually refers to any deceased creature that then returns back to life. So yeah, zombies are one of those, but of course, technically, so are vampires, mummies, ghosts, ghouls, and Frankenstein's monster, that sort of thing. Understood. Okay, see where you're going here. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, basically it refers to anything which is physically dead, but is still able to move around like it's alive. And it's not a new concept. The idea of corpses and spirits rising from the grave has been a part of folklore and mythology for thousands of years. Uh, One of the earliest known versions appears in the Mesopotamian novel The Epic of Gilgamesh, where a goddess uses magic to resurrect her deceased husband. In medieval Europe, we see stories of demons possessing corpses and bringing the dead back to haunt the living. Then in the 18th and 19th centuries, when the Industrial Revolution introduces new advances in technology, we find novels like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where science is used as the method for reanimating the dead instead of magic. And then we get explorers who are travelling the world, and they start to come back having met exotic new peoples in faraway places like Haiti or West Africa, who appear to bring back corpses through magic and voodoo. Well, those stories, they then make their way into pulp magazines, comic books and monster movies of the 1930s, 40s and 50s, before gradually sort of evolving away from voodoo and magic to more contemporary things. Things like radiation or the spread of a virus. And this all culminates, Pete, in the 1968 movie Night of the Living Dead by director George A. Romero. I'm sure you've seen that. I've seen it and I thought, it's an old movie, it's black and white, it's going to be really funny, isn't it? I found it absolutely terrifying and horrifying and took me (laughs) some time to recover from it. (laughs) I think that's a fair assessment, yeah. Uh, It released a huge success and it sort of largely shaped the archetype of the zombie that we're familiar with today. You know, those reanimated corpses driven by primal hunger, lacking intelligence, can only be killed by shooting or stabbing them in the head, you know, that sort of thing. Sequels and spin-offs then sort of drove the 
zombie legend into the mainstream, culminating in perhaps the biggest success of the zombie world, The Walking Dead, a franchise which has so far seen a comic book run that lasted from 2003 to 2019, a TV series which ran for 11 seasons, five spin-off shows, wow. as well as video games, novels and webisodes. In fact, one of the spin-off shows has recently started on TV. It's called The Walking Dead Daryl Dixon, and it's relevant for this episode because it's set in Paris oh, nice. with French zombies. How handy. Yeah. Brains, Brains. in garlic. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, look, to today's episode. While I'd like to bring you tales of 19th century Parisian citizens stabbing zombies in the head with a stale baguette, sadly, I couldn't find any evidence of oh, that actually happening. That's a shame. That would have been an excellent grade with Paul Dursley as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm instead going to bring you some terrifying stories that are zombie related, but definitely cover the living dead. All right. <laughs> okay, well, look, why don't we start with the chilling story of a Parisian doctor who warned the world that the dead walk amongst us. Nice. And we're going to hear about that after this. Entry log, October 1st, 9.30am. Present are Professor Boyle and General Romero. Commencing trial 37 on subject Rhesus 09, the modified strain of HHV administered intramuscular left deltoid. Observing for initial reaction. Alright, General, here we go. Well, how long will you think it'll take? Well, if Rhesus 08 is anything to go by, it should kick in right away. And what will we see exactly, Professor? Well, the exact manifestation is hard to tell, but the H8 virus is designed to make any creature ferocious. Hoorah! The first step in giving the army a fearless zombie super soldier. Oh wait, look, something's happening. What is it, Professor? I think it's, it's putting on nail varnish. What? Well, that can't be right. It is, look, high glitter nail varnish and a red feather boa. No, 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 something's wrong. And are they thigh-high leather boots? Oh my god, no! It's sashaying, it's sashaying! I must have miscalculated. Professor, what's happening? I, I don't understand. Where did it get a candy floss pink wig from? Get a grip of yourself, man. Tell me what's going on. The virus, General, it isn't making it ferocious. It's making it fabulous. Hit the alarm! All units to the lab! Oh no! It's mutating! No! I can't look! It's so bright! Get down! He's destroying the specimen! Where's the Take it All right, Ryan, tell me about this exciting Doctor character. So look, our first case of the living dead in Paris during the 19th century starts in 2008 in the Philippines. Right. So, OK, I'm going to go with it. I'm leaning in. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so a 53-year-old Filipino woman known only as Miss L is admitted to hospital after her family drop her off there, telling a doctor that she's not behaving normally, refusing to eat and to drink. And so the doctor asks Miss L why she's not eating or drinking, and she simply tells them that there's no point in her eating or drinking anymore because, as a dead person, she doesn't need to do that anymore. I mean, I, there's some logic to it, at least. I can, I'll say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, you seem a little confused. No more so than she, I'd say. <laughs> or indeed the doctor. And, and yeah, and so the doctor asks, well, how does she know that she's dead? And Miss L tells them that she can smell her body decomposing and so would like to be taken to the morgue so that she can be with other dead people. Again, a rational response, albeit for a dodgy foundation. <laughs> <laughs> and so the doctor starts to investigate this dead woman's case and finds that Miss L's history of depression and anxiety has triggered a condition known as Cotard's delusion. She's given a course of therapy and medication and eventually she recovers to the point where she finally agrees that she isn't actually dead and she's sent back home. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that is living dead. Yeah, I think you've nailed it there. <laughs> In the wrong country and place, but living dead wise, beautiful. Now, the story of Miss L might seem unusual, Pete, but this kind of extreme delusion where people think they're genuinely dead is not unique to her. In fact, Cotard's delusion is known to affect an estimated one in 200,000 people. That's, I mean, that's quite a lot for what it is. It seems like right? it should be rarer than that. <laughs> you get 200,000 people in a room, one of them's a zombie. Yeah. Well, they think they 
are at least. Yeah. I mean, that's what's that, a football stadium? How many people in a football yeah. stadium? <laughs> Who's the zombie at every football match? <laughs> Usually the yeah. referee, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, look, this only came to light thanks to a French doctor called Jules Cotard, who, at a meeting of the Medical Psychological Society in Paris on the 28th of June, 1880, oh. first described the condition, which he called la délirie de négation, or the delirium of negation. And basically, it described a mental state where those affected hold false beliefs about themselves and these delusions about their body, specifically the denial of their own existence. Now, to highlight his findings, Cotard described the case of a 43-year-old Parisian woman who had come to him believing that she had no brain, nerves, or chest. In fact, she said that she was made up entirely of skin and bone. That's so fascinating, isn't it? Isn't it? Now, he said that the onset of her delusions after some investigation had come from, in quotes, a sudden kind of internal creaking in her back that affected her head after which she then believed that she was dead and would live forever on Earth as an eternal being. Spooky, right? Yeah, but with an upside, you're like, I'm never going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm rotting and have no nerves. Uh, yeah, and it was through examining this woman that he is then able to outline the condition and suggest that any other patients who present with similar symptoms might have this delusion. He says symptoms might include a denial of their bodily organs, having the feeling of immortality or denial the reality of the world's existence. He says that it affects women more commonly than men, usually between the ages of 30 to 50, and that cases would most often be found in patients with psychotic disorders, especially those that have a preoccupation with guilt, despair and death. He said that some hear voices telling them that they're dead, while others just believe that parts of their body are missing, uh, and some think that nothing exists at all. All of them, he said, are at severe risk of harming themselves. As you can imagine, if you think, well, I'm already dead, I might as well jump off this building or stab myself in the face. It would lead you to throw caution to the wind somewhere, wouldn't it? Yeah. Now, he did point out, however, that while the symptoms are extreme, most people get better with treatment. Although in his time, treatment was electroconvulsive treatment where they stick those electrodes to your head and shock your brain. That is still in use today for severe cases of various conditions, and it can be a useful treatment. Well, there you go. I'm going to surprisingly come out in favour here. <laughs> well, very good. Well, that certainly helped these people, he says. Anyway, following this presentation, which was said to have been received with, in quotes, stunned silence, uh, the condition started to be used by doctors across France to diagnose patients. And by the time it appeared in the book Brain and Mental Diseases, which was published after his death, in 1891, the syndrome soon became internationally recognised as Cotard's delusion, or, as it's more commonly known, walking corpse syndrome. Walking corpse syndrome. Oh, I like that. The things that your brain can convince you are the case, even though when you aren't suffering from these conditions, you could say you manifestly are not dead and you're clearly not skin and bone because look if i poke you you know i can prove that you're wrong and it, it makes no difference because your brain's made a decision that's really Strange. amazing stuff yeah makes you wonder how we all interpret reality pete oh yeah it's all just a movie show put on by our brains maybe this podcast is just me talking in a room by myself in a very real way <laughs> <laughs> Spooky, spooky, spooky. <laughs> All right, Pete, if you think that was shocking, just you wait to what comes next, because this is truly going to shock you, because there is no delusion to our next tale of a dead man walking. And we'll hear about that after this. Uh, sorry, can I help you? Ah, yes. Uh, one, please. Uh, I'm sorry, one? You know, entry for one. Is it a ticket I need or something? I'm sorry, I've never done this before. So this is a morgue, not a theme park. Yes, I know. Entry for one to your morgue, please. One? One corpse. What else would I mean? Look, if you've encountered human remains, sir, you have to report it to the authorities. You can't just bring corpses down here. Oh, come on. I've come a long way. Can't you just pop me into one of those long people drawers I've seen on telly? What, pop you in? What? what? Yes, me. I'm the corpse. I'm dead. Deceased. I'm an ex-person. I have passed on. I have ceased to be. I've expired and gone to meet my maker. Ah, uh, well, now you're just quoting Monty Python. Oh, come on. I'm just dead, not soulless. We could still have a laugh, can't we? Well, not with my normal customers, no, which is kind of my point. You're walking, talking and quoting Monty Python, all things that suggest you're very much not dead. I can see why you'd think that, but really, can't you just let me have a nice lie down on a metal table and you can pop a luggage tag on my toe? I won't be any bother. 
look, I can't just let you in without a death certificate. There are rules. Oh, it's like that, is it? And how much is this death certificate then? Tenner? Twenty? No, I can't go higher than twenty. All right, look, I'll take twenty. Just go on, pop up into draw C3 next to Cyril and Tracy. Oh yeah. Hello! Shut up, corpses! You're supposed to be dead! Sorry! Sorry! <laughs> well, you've promised me zombies for real this time, Ryan. I want to hear more. Go, go, go. <laughs> I promised a dead man walking. <laughs> oh, this is a terms and conditions apply, is it? <laughs> uh, okay, so... When Julius Caesar and his Roman army conquered Paris in 52 BCE, they immediately started to transform it. Right? They wanted a classic Roman city. That means forums, baths, temples and arenas, all linked by lovely paved roads. But this, Pete, requires a lot of building materials, right? So rather than importing vast amounts of stone, they decided to dig out the most common material in the area. And that just happened to be limestone. And they did this on a vast scale. They dug out a quarried network of tunnels underneath the city that was so vast it spread out like a maze over literally hundreds of miles. Wow. But eventually the Roman Empire ended and these quarries were just abandoned. Years later, in the 18th century, the city is now a bustling metropolis. Half a million people are living and working on top of this network of ancient quarries. But Paris faced a problem. Well, two problems. The first problem is that the cemeteries were full. Literally, they were overflowing with corpses. And the result of that is outbreaks of disease that just adds to the cemetery problem. (laughs) (laughs) And the second problem is that some of the old Roman tunnels, the quarries, are starting to collapse, causing buildings to fall in, which of course endanger lives and add to the cemetery problem. (laughs) (laughs) So a solution is sought to solve both problems. And a clever plan is devised. Basically, the plan is this. Let's dig up the contents of all the cemeteries in Paris and take all the remains into the empty tunnels under the city. Basically, that would free up space in the cemeteries and give a reason to go down there and reinforce the tunnels. I like it. They've they've cured their cemetery problem. And so, starting in 1786, nightly processions of wagons begin to transfer the remains from nearly all of Paris's cemeteries, roughly 7 million people's bones, into the tunnels under the city. Bone wagon coming through. (laughs) Yeah. Now, originally, the skulls and bones were just sort of left in piles, but later on, people started to organise them into these vast walls of bones that ran in all directions for hundreds hundreds of miles throughout the tunnels. And so the old Roman quarries were renamed the Catacombs, but known to the citizens of Paris as the Empire of the Dead. Now, these catacombs are still there today, just feet under the surface of the city. Sections of them are open to the public, and if you visit Paris, you might want to become one of the 500,000 tourists a year who go on a guided tour. But otherwise, the incredible danger of wandering around in the catacombs means that outside of these organised visits, they're officially out of bounds. The entrances are locked, blocked, and just generally off-limits to people going down there. But that doesn't stop some determined folks, Pete, who still go down there, you know, for the thrills and the insta-opportunities. This sounds like an exciting teen thing to do. (laughs) Yeah, it's the kind of thing I might have done, to be fair. Um, (laughs) Yeah. In fact, they've gained something of a hotspot reputation as a hangout for, you know, edgy teenagers and thrill seekers, uh, you know, who like to go exploring in unusual places. But it is an incredibly dangerous place to visit. And a number of people have found themselves essentially buried alive, trapped underneath, underground, in these tunnels, unable to find a way out. Now, this is a type of horror which actually inspired the earliest use of the phrase the living dead. So written in 1843 by American poet uh, Edgar Allan Poe, the short story The Premature Burial features a narrator who finds himself buried alive, unable to escape, suffocated, hopeless and surrounded by the spirits of the damned. He says, a thick darkness enveloped me and I could hear nothing save the beating of my own heart. I tried to move my limbs, but they were stiff and powerless. A cold sweat stood upon my brow, and I felt that the blood had congealed in my veins. I was buried in the grave, 
and in the agonies of the living dead. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. And with that horrible thought in mind, I'm now going to tell you the true story of a man who was forced to face this torture. A man who is considered to be the first known person to have died in the Parisian catacombs. I'm going to warn you, this is a story of skin-crawling terror. Ugh. So you have been warned. I'm scared. But okay. carry on. <laughs> okay, so it's 1793, Pete. That means we're in the middle of the French Revolution. It's the year in which we've seen the execution of King Louis XVI by guillotine and the dawn of a new French Republic. The fighting's not yet over, though, and that means wounded and dying soldiers needing medical attention. And one of the more notable military hospitals in Paris is an old converted abbey called the Val de Grace. And it's one of these hospital employees that we're interested in. 61-year-old Philibert Asper. Philibert Asper, that's a great name. Yeah, now he's a doorkeeper, which basically means he's responsible for controlling access to the hospital. He opens and closes gates, he ensures security by allowing authorised personnel on site. I mean, we don't really know anything else about him. We don't know, certainly don't know anything about his earlier life, but we do know that on the 3rd of November, Philibert decided to go down into the catacombs and that he never returned. And again, we don't really know exactly what happened to Philibert during his time down in the catacombs. However, armed with some facts that I could find, I sought out some expert advice to see if I could work out what might have happened to him. So I gave all this information that I found to a retired detective and a medical pathologist, and together they've been able to recreate a hypothetical view of what might have happened in his final days. Oh, no. And so we begin. It's early November. Philibert overhears a conversation about a rumour of some hidden booze being stored in the catacombs beneath a nearby convent. As the days pass, Philibert starts to obsess about this hidden treasure of illicit alcohol, and he starts thinking about maybe going down into the catacombs and stealing it. And that brings us to day one. It's a cold November evening, and Philibert is working alone on the night shift. It's a particularly busy night, and he's stressed and he's exhausted. Suddenly, there's a lull, and Philibert decides that this is the moment to make his move. So he heads to the hospital courtyard, where he knows there is an entrance to the catacombs. He uses his key to open the gate, and not wanting to get caught, he covers his tracks by closing the gate behind him and locking it tightly. It's good with gates. He's a doorkeeper, right? He knows his business. Yeah. He takes out a candle, he lights it, and he begins his journey down a flight of steps into the dark. Now, as he makes his way through the labyrinthine tunnels, the promise of booze pushes him further, and with every corner, he convinces himself he's getting closer. Hours pass, and eventually Philibert realises that the winding corridors are all starting to look the same. The dim light from his candle is casting eerie shadows on the walls, all of which are lined with bones. More time passes, and as the wax of his candle slowly drips away, Philibert begins to consider that he needs to get back above ground before the candle goes out. And so he turns around and he heads back down the tunnels he came through, picking up pace as the candle gets lower. As time passes, though, the candle is now just a small nub between his fingers, and the realisation hits him like a brick that he's about to be plunged into darkness, and he has no clue which direction to go. Anxiety spikes, and he starts to breathe rapidly as his heart rate thumps. He rushes through the tunnels, turning left and right at random, desperately trying to find anything which looks familiar. But at every turn, the catacombs seem identical, with walls of bones and chambers of skulls welcoming him to the Empire of the Dead. And then, to his horror, the candle goes out. No! <laughs> Day two. Now encased in utter darkness, hours pass by like days. Philibert stumbles forward, walking with his hands in front of him, groping the walls to try and find anything which might lead to an exit. As he presses his hands against one wall, he feels water seeping down from the ceiling, and desperately thirsty, he presses his lips to the wall and sips at this thin layer of moisture to quench his thirst. 
Having drunk the water, he feels a renewed sense of energy and he continues on down the tunnels with confidence. After all, the exit must be around here somewhere, right? Right. (laughs) But by the evening, bacteria from the water that he's just drunk reaches his intestines and he winces at the first signs of stomach cramps. Shock, exhaustion, it all sets in, so he slumps down onto the ground with his back against a limestone wall. Day three. His stomach growling and nausea kicking in, he's finding sleep impossible. This is made worse by the fact that the human internal biological clock is regulated in part by exposure to light, and without light cues, Philibert's sleep cycle is now horribly disrupted. He eventually manages just a few light hours of sleep before insomnia really kicks in, and he's just sitting there in the dark, full of dreadful thoughts. So he decides, I've got to press on but not before he is hit by explosive vomiting and diarrhoea as his body rejects all that tainted wall water. With shaking hands, he cleans himself up as best he can and he stumbles on into the dark. But several hours of leaning against a cold limestone wall has caused Philibert to start shivering and early hypothermia has set in. Further bouts of vomiting and diarrhoea throughout the day add to his woes, and as the oppressive darkness truly sinks in, he is pushed to despair. He falls to his knees, he yells, he sobs, and he begs for help. As night falls on the third day, Philibert again tries to rest, but his sleep is disturbed by the unmistakable sound of rats. They keep their distance, but the rats, a constant need to go to the toilet, and the ever-present cold stops him from truly falling asleep. And for the second night in a row, he manages just a few short bouts of fitful sleep. Which brings us to days four and five. Philibert wakes to hunger pains and a migraine-level headache thanks to dehydration. As he walks along the tunnels, he finds more seeping water and his incredible thirst makes him drink more. But this, of course, just aggravates his already explosive issues, and with the cold now reaching his body core, Philibert's energy levels plummet. He finds it hard to keep his arms raised as he stumbles forward in the dark. His feet become heavy, and he trips, and he falls constantly. On more than one occasion, finding the wall with his face on the way down. Eventually, he just slumps to the floor and passes out. The rats, sensing weakness, start to come closer. Philibert spends the next few hours in unconsciousness and wakes to find himself surrounded by rats. He shoos them away and he quickly gets to his feet. Day six and seven. All of Philibert's diarrhoea and vomiting has now caused him extreme dehydration and along with the prolonged exposure to darkness, Philibert's brain, deprived of visual stimuli, starts generating images of its own leading Philibert to start hallucinating shapes and shadows, possibly of skeletons, shuffling around him. With what energy he has left, Philibert lays on the ground, sobbing. And as he lays there in a semi-conscious state, the rats grow bolder, nipping at his exposed skin. The pain and the fear from these bites generates a rush of adrenaline, and with a burst of anger he bellows into the dark swinging his arms and legs at the rats all around him. Day 8 to 10. Hunger, dehydration and hypothermia have now completely taken over and Philibert's condition deteriorates rapidly. No longer able to move beyond pitifully dragging himself along the floor, the rats sense their opportunity and become more aggressive, biting small chunks out of his body. Weakness prevents him from fighting back, and as Philibert closes his eyes for the final time, blood seeps out of his bites, and he slowly loses consciousness. And that brings us to our time period, 11 years later in 1804. Several servicemen enter the catacombs in Genvilliers, a suburb just outside of Paris. As they step down into the tunnel, about 15 feet from the entrance, their lamps fall on a bundle of rags on the floor. Not much of Philibert was left when they found him. In fact, he was only identified by the buttons on his jacket and a keyring on his belt. 
In his time within the catacombs, Philibert had walked over seven miles from the Val de Grace Hospital to his final resting place outside Paris in Genvilliers. A decision was taken to bury him where he was found, and a stone marker was placed over his grave. It reads, In the memory of Philibert Asper, lost in this excavation on 3rd of November 1793, found 11 years later and buried at the same place on the 30th of April 1804. And so, if you wish to pay your respects, you can visit his tomb today. It's located in the catacombs under the Rue Henri Barbousse, next to the Boulevard Saint-Michel. But just don't go in alone, because you don't want to end up like Philibert, lost and confused, a dead man walking in the Empire of the Dead. Or he found the booze, lay a fake skeleton to put people off the scent, and lived happily ever after. In Bermuda. <laughs> That's what I'm choosing to believe, because that was horrifying. <laughs> Poor old Philibert, eh? Well, yes, that was truly awful, Ryan. Thank you very much. I can only say, well done, that was dreadful, in all the best ways. <laughs> Don't go down into the catacombs, people. <laughs> It's awful. I, if it's if there's no guided tour, don't do it. I think that's what I'm, my takeaway is. <laughs> Gary, we're running out of cider. Could you pop down in the cellar and get some more? Yeah, no problem. Nowhere to go? Yeah, I think so. Far end of the cellar. Yeah. Yeah, you see that door? Oh, right, okay. Yeah, go through that and follow the tunnel for 50 yards. Okay. Then take the second left and the third right. What, past the wall of skulls? Yep, yep, then head past the fibulas. Right. No, actually, sorry, I meant the tibias. Okay, tibias. Yeah. yeah, yeah. if you see the fibulas, you've gone too far. Oh, yeah, that's how we lost Tina and Jeffrey, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. So go past the tibias. Right. Then second left, take the first right, head right again. Mile down there, turn left, turn left, another mile. Go right, head straight through the ribcage arch. Bottles are right there. Oh, okay, no problem. Wait, was it second left, then third right, or third left, then second right? Oh, come on, Gary, keep up. There's thirsty customers here. It's second left, then third right. Okay, okay, thanks. And if you do get lost, just Listen for the angry rats and go the other way. Righto, I'm on it. See you in a fortnight. Oh, hang on. It was third left, second right. Nah, I'm sure it'll be alright. What can I get you, mate? All right, Ryan, well, now I'm creeped out, horrified, terrified and educated in equal measures. <laughs> what else can you tell me about the living dead in Paris? Well, I've got one last story to tell you, Pete. Is it as bleak as the last one? No, it's more fun, this one. All right, bring it home. All right, so born in Tours, France, on the uh, 1st of March, 1859, meet Oscar Matenier, who spent much of his early years reading and writing. Now, after moving to Paris in his early 20s, he quickly gravitated to the world of literature and drama. He writes a series of well-received, but not necessarily groundbreaking plays and novels, and then that all changes as he starts to develop a new, darker sensibility. He chooses to write less about the aristocracy and more about people on the fringes of society instead. Outcasts like prostitutes, criminals and street urchins. Things that people weren't really hearing about. Now, unsurprisingly, the darker tone of these plays about Parisian underbelly were received warmly by people who were interested to see what life was like at the bottom of the social ladder. But for others, the plays were seen as too provocative and controversial. And as a result, many of his plays were facing censorship or even being banned altogether. Now, as you might imagine, this would obviously frustrate him, and so, determined to have the freedom to produce work without the interference of anybody else, he decides he's going to start his own theatre, Pete. Nice! That's a, an enterprising young fellow. He's a creative, right? Absolutely. And so, he sets out and he finds himself this former chapel in the Pigalle district, and uh, he turns it into a venue that could showcase his work. Now, the theatre was small. It was the smallest in Paris, in fact, with a maximum capacity of just under 300 people. But this was perfect for Oscar because he thought it brought audiences closer to the action on stage. And so in 1897, the Theatre de 
the Grand Guignol opened its doors. Ah, it's <laughs> rung a bell for me. <laughs> All right. So the name Grand Guignol refers to Guignol, a French puppet character who is recognised as a symbol of outrageous entertainment. And that's certainly prescient for this theatre because Oscar's darker plays about death and murder quickly garnered the theatre a reputation as the only place in Paris to see shocking and disturbing plays. And unsurprisingly, people flocked to come and see them, selling out the venue almost every night. But as time went on and people grew accustomed to this shocking material, Oscar found himself having to write increasingly explicit and gruesome plays. <laughs> now, the themes of the plays shifted away eventually from prostitutes and urchins and focused instead on narratives about insanity and the supernatural, each with more explicit and extreme violence. And to maintain a sense of reality to the performances, Oscar invested heavily in elaborate special effects that could realistically show gore and violence on stage, with audiences being shocked by things like eye gouging, dismemberment, torture, and live dissections. Oh, nice. That's what I like in a Friday night out. Right. It's just like horror movies, I guess, at the time. <laughs> now, in fact, after only a year, Oscar felt that the theatre had strayed so far from his initial ideas that he had to hire another director director, a man called Max Moray, to take over from him. And this was a shift which saw the theatre move even deeper into the production of horror, with Max saying that the success of each performance could only be measured by the number of audience members who passed out from shock. <laughs> <laughs> well, he knew, he knew his brand, I guess. <laughs> what was the minimum, do you think? Oh, four. Two every night. <laughs> and so audiences really couldn't believe their eyes. Rumours started to circulate that the violence on stage was real, a type of sort of snuff play where actors were truly being tortured or murdered and that their ghosts were now haunting the building. All of which contributed to making the theatre, the Grand Guignol, hugely popular. This is terrible. I must get a ticket. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. With audiences desperate to sort of endure the disturbing but thrilling performances. One reviewer of the time, Pete, he described a performance like like this. On the tiny stage, dislocated bodies, torn limbs, madmen escaped from the asylum, and bloodthirsty hystericals play with the nerves of the audience who are fascinated and disgusted at the same time. Yeah, I'm not a horror fan, actually. I'm going to stick with my uh, Swan Lake and uh, the Gothic Ballet and Opera, I think. Oh, bless you. <laughs> Sweet child. Not a big fan of the gore. <laughs> well, certainly not this one. So look, yeah, the, the horror shows were so intense that Max Max had to introduce what he called hot and cold showers, where short comedy plays had to be performed between the horror plays to just give the audience a moment of respite. <laughs> a little light relief from all the dismemberment. Yeah, and it wasn't just the horror that got people going either. Some plays were considered so sexually arousing that it wasn't uncommon for the actors to break character mid-scene and yell at audience members to stop, in quotes, surfacing themselves and their partners. That's something that I discourage that in public also. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the Grand Guignol Theatre continued producing plays up until the 1960s, when eventually, sadly, it closed. But during its time, it produced over 1,500 plays. Plays like A Crime in a Madhouse where two women in an asylum become jealous of another prettier inmate and use scissors to cut out her eyes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Or the horrible passion about a nanny who strangles the children in her care. Well, that's just something that happens sometimes. <laughs> Wait, what? Children are very annoying. <laughs> Dursley will support that. <laughs> and then there's The Laboratory of Hallucinations, which features a doctor who finds his wife's lover in his operating room. How that happens, I don't know, but he decides that he's going to perform brain surgery on him. And so he does, and he renders him a zombie. But this backfires, Pete, because the zombie gets his revenge by hammering a chisel into the doctor's brain. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> yeah. And of course, finally, to round out our Halloween special, in 1898, the Grand Guignol Theatre produced a play written by Henri Delors called Les Morts Vivants, or in English, The Living Dead. And so there we go. The Living Dead really was a thing, Pete, in Paris during the 19th century. 
I do believe you have hit the nail on the head. There was the dead that were alive. There were the alive that were dead. You linked in every case to the time period. And uh, it was definitely Paris. So I think you did a marvellous job, except for your sojourn in the Philippines in the late 20th century. (laughs) (laughs) Hitting the nail on the head sounds like something that might have happened at the Grand Grignon. It does, doesn't it? (laughs) That's another play. (laughs) Big seller, that one. (laughs) And with the gouging of the eyeballs and the nosectomy show. I'll tell you what, Pete. I'm sad that Halloween is nearly over. I am also. That was an absolutely excellent job, my friend. A very, very impressive episode on what I thought was going to be really difficult. But I think you did an excellent job. And I've been terrified, horrified and educated in equal measures. And I think that is a sign of a good Halloween episode. Well, thank you very much, sir. And if you like this, you'll be pleased to know I have a bunch of stories that couldn't fit into this episode. So they'll be coming up soon in The Verdict. The Verdict. Ah, Marcel, do come in. Ah, Jean-Pierre, darling, it has been too long. As Moliere once said, you are my peace, my solace, my salvation. Right. Uh, I do have some news about the Grand Guignol gig, though. Of course, of course, yes, the very arena of contemporary art. Have they offered me a role in their latest extravaganza, sir? Well, yes. I knew it. (laughs) From the very moment I read for the director, I felt Melpemonier the muse herself bestowing her blessing upon my performance. All the world's a stage, Jean-Pierre, and all the men and women merely players. Yeah, sure. Uh, Anyway, look, it's a leading role. Of course. I mean, beauty provoker thieves sooner than gold, eh? (laughs) How could the troop not kneel before the triumphant potency of my projected self? Indeed, yes. Anyway, look, I am obliged to advise you that this is a performance for one night only. And by my deeds shall I transform this opening night to the night of nights. A single, rising, blazing phoenix of a show, Jean-Pierre! A night to end all nights. Well, it's funny you should say that because I am also obliged to warn you that you could die. Die? Ho oh, ho, that this too, too solid flesh would melt on Pierre. I fear not death upon the stage. Super, so you don't mind signing this little waiver then? Here, take your piffling papers and be gone, sir. I dwell upon the art, the culture, and mine own deity, the very stage herself. Fair enough. I shall rise to elevate and educate the masses from their muddy gutter. For if it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. What? And tomorrow, my good Jean-Pierre, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, we three shall meet again and read the reviews and celebrate. Oh, I wouldn't worry too much about tomorrow if I were you. Three hours later. Friends, Romans, countrymen... So that was good stuff, Ryan, but uh, now we have to look to the future. We have to go back to our normal process of normal history and not so terrifying, frightening things. But to do that, we have to pull out... The regular Dursalator. The regular Dursalator. Pack away your Spookalator and we'll get on to the normal Dursalator. Oh, bye, Spookalator. Okay, so it's my episode next, Ryan, so if you would care to do the honours. All right, and your place is... The Philippines. Oh, nice. Nice. All right. And your uh, time period is? Oh, this is interesting. The Chinese Civil War. So this is 1927 to 1937. Okay. And 1946 to 1950. Oh, so what? This is a civil war that they paused to have the world war in between or something? Oh yeah, 37 to 46. Yeah, it must have been. It does sound like it's a bit of a challenge because a lot of stuff happens in World War II and you seem to have excluded that, but maybe the topic will be her help. Okay, and your topic is martial arts. Oh right, so I'm doing fighting but not during the period of the war. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the Chinese Civil War, right? So it is still a war. Yeah, there's going to be fighting. Yeah, but that's in China. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) 
Okay. I'm sure there'll be something. I'm excited to look into it. It's a great country I'm because I'm excited to be doing some Philippines research at least. Okay, so it is Martial Arts in the Philippines during the Chinese Civil War, which is 1927 to 1937 and 1946 to 1950. I'm on it, Sensei. That is a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that desolation, that's our show for the week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show or to share your horror at Ryan's story of the catacombs or just to say hello you can reach out to us through our website hhepodcast.com or you can email us at pete and ryan at hhepodcast.com that's right we'd love to hear from you and you never know you might end up featured on a future show and if you're on mastodon instagram facebook or x you can find us at hhepodcast and if you subscribe to those you're going to get an alert every time we post extra content like facts about zombies facts about brains and other bits and bobs that I can find. I'm sure we'll be creeping you out on a regular basis if you check us out there. And we will, of course, be back again soon with... The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Ryan. I love that. Oh, thanks, Pete. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History Happened Everywhere. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. We're supposed to be going trick-or-treating. Why aren't you in costume? I am in costume. What? No, that's just you carrying a big handbag. But it's what's in the handbag. Look, I've got wet wipes, some uh, healthy snacks, some sticking plasters. I don't get it. Well, I'm a mummy. I'm still not with you. No, well, look, my mummy always had stuff like that when I got hungry or scraped my knee. Oh, I see what you've done, Ryan. No, no, you're supposed to be the mummy, as in a hideous creature. You calling my mummy a hideous creature? No, I mean the Egyptian mummy, the monster covered in bandages. Oh, no, I've got bandages too, in my handbag. No, you're supposed to be something scary, something terrifying. Peter Goddard, have you been leading Ryan astray again? If you keep making that face, the wind will change and you'll get stuck like it. What time do you call this? Just you wait till your father gets home, young man. Right, yep, I see it now. I am scared. Should we go trick-or-treating? Oh, you're not going out without a scarf. Stop it, you're scaring me. Give mummy a kiss. Nail. Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween.